This is a Rooster Teeth production. February 19th, 1985. China Airlines flight 006, a Boeing 747 with 274 people on board, is en route on a Trans-Pacific flight from Taipei, Taiwan to Los Angeles, California. The trip is largely uneventful, and the aircraft is about 300 miles west of San Francisco. After passing through some turbulence, the flight engineer begins to notice that the number four engine doesn't seem to be responding and has possibly flamed out. The crew begins troubleshooting the engine, and in the process, the first officer informs the captain the plane appears to be banking to the right. The captain disables the autopilot, and the plane immediately becomes uncontrollable. The plane rolls right, goes into a deep bank, and begins a spiraling nosedive. What happens to China Airlines Flight 006? Are they able to reach an airport before the situation deteriorates further? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Hello. I don't know how the situation could deteriorate any further. It's already pretty bad. They're in a deep bank, spiraling nosedive. I think they go upside down at one point when they're doing this. They're not in good shape at this point. I cannot imagine being upside down on a commercial flight. It's like, I think, I believe if I remember right, what happens is the plane begins banking so much and then begins like dipping down into a nosedive that essentially goes inverted as it's coming down towards the ocean. Oh, Yeah, it's not something that should happen. Uh, you know, I know we talked previously a long time ago about Tex Johnson doing a barrel roll in a Boeing 707 to show it off to sell airplanes back in the day, but that should not happen. Mm-hmm. Should not, should not yeah. go inverted. If Top Gun taught me anything, it's you should never do that. Well, wait, but they do that all the time in Top Gun. <laughs> You're right. They do do that all the time. <laughs> they didn't te- I didn't learn that from Top Gun. Things I learned from Top Gun were about working as a team and Playing volleyball. volleyball. <laughs> I was never a good student. I always learned the, lo- the wrong lessons. I mean, that's a good lesson, too, though, out of context of Top Gun. Yeah. You know, I always say it. We got our podcast everywhere. Uh, you can subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. We even have our own YouTube channel, Black Box Down. Uh, we put the podcast up there as well. So wherever you want, you can just search for Black Box Down. Uh, hopefully you'll find us. We're uh, trying to get into as many platforms as possible. Are there podcasts in refrigerators yet? Can we be the first podcast in a refrigerator? Well, they had those fridges with like screens on them. Yeah. So someone could play us on a fridge. Send us a picture. Tweet at us or <laughs> send us a message at Black Box Down Pod on social media. If you can listen to our podcast on a fridge, I want to see that. Okay, that's enough craziness leading up to the episode. We're here today to talk about China Airlines Flight 006. Like we mentioned, it was a passenger flight from Taipei, Taiwan to Los Angeles back on February 19th, 1985. The flight was crewed by Captain Min Yan Ho, who was 55 years old, had 15,494 flight hours. First officer was Zhu Yu Chang, who was 53, had 7,734 flight hours. And the flight engineer was Ku Pin Wei, who was 55 years old, with 15,510 flight hours. And, you know, this is one of those transoceanic flights, you know, flying across the Pacific. So we've mentioned this many times before. There were also some relief flight crew members, you know, who come in and help relieve the crew so they don't have to fly the entire time. The relief flight crew members were Captain Chen Yun Lao, who was 53, and flight engineer Su Shi Lung, who was 41. Like I said, the aircraft was a Boeing 747, delivered to the airline June 29th, 1982. So it was only a couple years old at this point. Yeah, that's pretty young for an airplane. Yeah, less than three years old. It only had 10,192 flight hours. So yeah, really young. Uh, and there were flight, 18 flight attendants and 251 passengers on board, which brings the total, like I said, to 274. So this flight, 006, departed from Taipei at 4.22 p.m. Taipei time, which is 12.22 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. All the times for the rest of this episode are Pacific Time. Okay. Okay. <laughs> we're we're going to deal with that because this largely happens in Pacific Time. So I just want to give reference yeah. for when it was Taipei time. 
The flight was cruising at flight level 410 and was operating normally until they were just west of waypoint Redu, which is located 300 nautical miles northwest of San Francisco. So, you know, they're approaching the west coast of the United States. You know, they're mm-hmm. going to Los Angeles, but, you know, they're passing uh, through this uh, waypoint at this moment. Okay. As the airplane approached Redu, it began to encounter light air turbulence and the airspeed began fluctuating between about 0.84 Mach and 0.88 Mach. And the autopilot began moving the throttles forward and aft to maintain the commanded cruise Mach number of 0.85 Mach. So a little bit of turbulence, the airspeed's changing a bit. So the auto throttle is just trying to move the throttles a little bit to maintain the airspeed, which is what it's supposed to do. Mm -hmm. The autopilot was operating in performance management system uh, mode. We've talked about this before. Pilots love acronyms. (laughs) So the performance management system is PMS mode. So if you hear me saying PMS or PMS mode, (laughs) it's performance management system. There's acronyms for everything, Chris. PLA, (laughs) pilots love acronyms. I know there is bound to be an acronym that made me laugh at some point. but (laughs) There's tons of them. Uh, Didn't we have another funny one at one point? I don't remember. But the pilot working in PMS mode is... (laughs) The autopilot. Okay, sorry. Yeah, the autopilot. It's a performance management system, PMS mode. So this means, you know, that it's providing pitch guidance to maintain the selected altitude of 41,000 feet. You know, and pitch guidance is just like nose up and nose down of the plane. That's the pitch of the airplane. Um, The roll guidance was being provided by the inertial navigation system or the INS. And rolls, of course, like banking left and right. Yeah. The autopilot only uses the airplane's ailerons and spoilers for lateral control and not the rudder or the rudder trim. Ailerons are like the little, they're not the flaps, but they look like little flaps at the back edge of the wings that go up and down to help bank the plane. Confusingly like the flaps. Correct. The flaps are also in a similar position, just closer to the body of the plane. The ailerons are further out. But importantly, you know, it does not use the rudder or the rudder trim. And the rudder, of course, is the big vertical part at the tail end of the plane. The PMS was also providing thrust setting commands to the auto throttle system. At about 10.10 a.m., the Mach number increased to about Mach 0.88, and the engine thrust decreased to about 1.0 engine pressure ratio. We've talked about the EPR before. It's the turbine discharge total pressure divided by the total pressure at the compressor inlet. So the higher the EPR, the greater the thrust uh, output. As the airspeed reached 0.84 Mach, the PMS moved the throttles forward, because remember, it's trying to keep 0.85 Mach is the speed it's supposed to be at. So, you know, Mm -hmm. as the throttles move forward, engines 1, 2, and 3 respond to the movement of the throttles and begin accelerating. However, the flight engineer said that the instrument gauges for the number 4 engine did not indicate an acceleration. So, you know, the throttles move up, 1, 2, and 3 respond, number 4 isn't responding. It's still giving throttle, but it's not Mm -hmm. responding to the increased request. Hmm. So the flight engineer, you know, sees this and he manually moves the number four throttle forward and aft, like he's moving it back and forth manually uh, to see if he can notice any change in that engine, but he doesn't see any change in the instrument. So you adjust them as a whole, but then you can also like... Correct. Okay. Hmm. You can also individual. And we've talked about similar things before where, you know, pilots will lose power in one engine and so they have to compensate by adding more on the side where the engine's lost and Mm -hmm. uh, decreasing on the other side in this case. So yeah, you can move them as a whole, but you can also move them individually. So, you know, he, like he said, he's moving the number four throttle, you know, forward and aft, nothing's happening. So he goes through, he's going through his process. He confirms that fuel's being supplied to all the engines and, you know, automatic fuel heating was on, you know, making sure that there's no ice or nothing's gummed up. Like fuel's getting to the engine. It's just not really responding for some reason. So the crew turns on the fastened seatbelt sign. They're going through a little bit of turbulence anyway. So I probably out of an abundance of caution, put the seatbelt sign on just to be safe. And they place the ignition switches to the flight start position for all engines to provide continuous ignition, as is the company procedure. I've said this many times. 
I'm not a pilot. I'm a student pilot on small little you know, like planes. I'm definitely not a 747 pilot. So I can't tell you why they would do that specifically. But they're probably hoping if it's in continuous ignition that at some point it might just catch and start responding again, hmm. if I had to guess. So shortly after this, the flight engineer told the captain that the number four engine had flamed out and noted the number four generator breaker open light was lit, indicating that the number four generator control breaker had opened and the generator was no longer online. In response, the captain started the engine out procedures and looked at the three engine performance charts. He asked the first officer to request a lower altitude to descend to in order to try to restart the engine because the maximum engine restart altitude was 30,000 feet. And we've actually talked about this before too. Uh, you know, they got to get lower to try to restart the engine where there's more oxygen, where the air's a little bit thicker. When they're up that high, they can't. The engine's not going to restart. Okay, yeah. So the captain tells the first officer, contact air traffic control, see if we can get down to 30,000 feet. But despite that, the crew went ahead and tried to relight the number four engine anyway while they're still at 41,000 feet. Uh, and of course... The attempt was unsuccessful, uh, and the airplane mm. continued to decelerate. The first officer then called the relief flight engineer to come to the cockpit and assist, and he noticed that the airplane was decelerating, and he told the captain about the situation. Wait, this is, yeah, so they're engineers. And the, this is, like, early enough. Yeah, this is still back in the 80s. The computers haven't fully taken over everything yet, so there is a flight engineer in the, in the cockpit. At 10.14 a.m., he requested a lower altitude from the Oakland Center air traffic control, but he did not inform Oakland about the engine failure and did not declare an emergency. Oakland responded, telling him to stand by, and the first officer did not recall hearing any further response to his request. But the air traffic control transcript shows that at 10.15, air traffic control did clear the flight to descend and maintain flight level 240. However, flight 006 did not acknowledge this request. And over the next minute, Oakland Center tried to contact flight 006 six times, but they were unsuccessful. I don't think we're going to discuss this later um, in this episode. So I feel like it's important to mention at this moment right now that before they took off when they were doing their pre-flight briefing, mm -hmm. the, the captain was informed that the number four engine had been a little wonky in the past, that maintenance had been working on it. So as this is all going on, he's probably remembering, they told me something was weird with that engine. So maybe that's why he's telling him, try to restart it now at 41,000 feet. It, like things are, are, are a little out of whack. It's not quite right. And I think maybe at, if I had to guess, he's maybe a little distracted thinking about, well, what could be wrong with that engine? They told me there was something wrong going on with it. When they give you a warning, hey, things are a little wonky on this engine. What, is, what does that mean? If I had to guess, it's just like probably letting them know, you know, there's been fluctuations in the engine power. Maintenance has looked at it. I believe they even told him maintenance had corrected some issues with it. Okay. But it's still in his head, you know, he's, he's thinking, they told, like, this engine's been acting up. You know, even though maintenance has looked at it and fixed it, it's like, you know, something breaks in your car, you start hearing a weird noise, like, is it that thing again? Is it that thing that I thought was fixed? Uh -huh, like, uh -huh. your, your mind's just gonna kind of yeah. like, when something's not right, it's gonna go back to the thing that you know was most recently acting up. Okay. So when the airspeed dropped through 240 knots, the captain turned off the autopilot speed mode selector switch from PMS to off in order to release it from the altitude hold command. This switched the autopilot to the pitch attitude hold mode while maintaining INS track in the roll mode without any pilot input. At this point, the captain then rotated the pitch control wheel on the autopilot in the nose down direction to begin a descent to stop the airspeed loss. Because of course, you know, if you're pitching down, you know, you're going you're gonna to speed up. Mm -hmm. However, the captain said that the airspeed continued to decrease and he disengaged the autopilot to lower the nose manually at a faster rate to stop the airspeed loss. It's just the one engine that's acting wonky, though? Correct. So number four isn't really responding, uh, but regardless, they're losing airspeed, even though one, two, and three are responding. 
yeah, but it should be fine with just the one. You're right. The 747 should fly just fine with one engine out. With one engine out, it's not going to be as efficient because the engine's creating more drag without giving any thrust, but they can fly fine. I think we've, you know, we've even talked about situations where 747 has two or one engine and it's not supposed to. It can't really fly with one, but you know, you, you can slow yourself down and maintain your like, extended glide. But with three engines, the 747 should be fine. Yeah. But yeah, they're they're slowing down. And, you know, they try to nose down a little bit and they're still slowing down. So the captain, what? you know, is like, well, let me manually nose down to try to, to give us a, some more speed. So at this point, the first officer saw that the plane began to bank slightly to the right. He noticed the autopilot disconnect by the captain and saw a continuous bank to the right. So, you know, first officer sees this going on and he tells the captain, hey, we're banking to the right. And of course, you probably know this. We've talked about this before. The reason the plane's going to be banking to the right is with the number four engine out on the right side, you're getting more thrust from your left side. The number one Mm -hmm. and number two engine are, are going to give more thrust, give more lift to that left wing, which is going to go up and the right wing's producing less lift. So it's going to go down. So the plane's slowly beginning to bank to the right because of this asymmetrical thrust. Yeah. So the captain, you know, he's being told the plane's starting to bank to the right. He looks at his uh, attitude director indicator or ADI to make a left wing down correction. But the instrument's horizontal reference line rotated rapidly to the left and became vertical. So the ADI is like that artificial horizon. I've posted some pictures of these on social media before. It's just like what shows the pilot's what the horizon is. Like, if, even if you can't see outside, you have this instrument that shows you if you're level, if you're banking, or what's going on. Oh, yeah, yeah. And this is the one that, was it Was it Russia or something? That they had right. a different inverted version where it was stable with the, the plane versus the horizon. Exactly, yeah, the ADI. You're exactly right. It's blue on the top, gra- brown on the bottom. That way you can determine, oh, that, that's the direction the sky's in, that's the direction the ground's in, <laughs> and this is what the plane looks like in relation to it. So, you know, the pilot knows that they're banking to the right, and, you know, he looks, he's going to correct to the left, looks at his ADI, and like I said, the instrument's horizontal reference line starts rotating rapidly to the left and goes vertical, which, you know, he in his mind doesn't make any sense. He doesn't see any failure flags or lights on his ADI. And when he looked at the first officer's ADI and the standby ADI, they're in the same position. Huh? When you say same position, is then they moved as well? Yeah, they're also vertical. The horizontal line has moved rapidly to the left and is vertical. And at this point, they're in clouds, so they can't see the horizon so they don't know what their attitude actually is. And could they not tell that they were that off, that sideways, I guess? <laughs> it's hard to tell sometimes, especially if you can't see. So see, you've already latched onto it. <laughs> they, they don't know what's going on at this point. Uh, at, at this point, they know that they're banked, but they don't know necessarily how far they're banked. Uh-huh. Uh, and when, they, when, they're look, when the captain's looking at these instruments and sees it like this, he thinks that's impossible. We're not really banked that far. These instruments have failed. So even though the ADI is giving him correct information, it looks so wrong to him. He thinks that's impossible. The ADI is just broken. But there's separate ADIs for every single, for him and the... And the first officer. And there's a standby one as well. Yeah. So there's three of them. Right. But in his mind, it doesn't make sense. They're broken. And we've, you know, you know, sometimes weird things happen. We've talked about inertial reference units going out, you know, and, you know, the instruments going wonky uh, in the past and other episodes. Uh, I don't know. I, I can't. I don't know what to tell you. You're right. The correct assumption is they can't all. They probably all are not failing in the exact same way without generating any errors. But on the other hand, we have seen weird things happen in previous episodes that you mm-hmm. think that seems impossible. So yeah, you're correct. What's happening is the ADI is giving him correct information. You know, they are 
at a 90 degree bank. And now, you know, like I said earlier, they go, they're going inverted. You know, he's looking at his ADI, the Browns above the blue. It doesn't make any sense. He thinks that they've all just failed. Oh no. Yeah. And as, as this is going on, the flight engineer informs the captain that the other three engines had lost thrust and the airplane has dropped all of a sudden. The captain pulled back on his control column, uh, but the airspeed continued to increase and it exceeded the maximum operating limit. Uh, the maximum operating limit above 24,500 feet is 0.92 Mach or 613 knots. So they're they're like breaking their speed limit. So they're going too fast for that high up in the air for that plane? Is that what? Correct. Correct. They are now going way too fast. And, and that uh, means it's just like bad for the, it could break the plane? Exactly. Is that why it's, okay. Yeah. Uh, it's, it, the, yeah. the plane's not designed to go uh, above those certain speeds. And uh, you, can, you can start causing damage, like actual damage to the plane and the, the parts. So the first officer noticed the malfunctioning ADIs and he felt that the airplane was in a steep bank, which, you know, we know they were. The engineer mm-hmm. placed the standby ignition switch uh, on, but there was no engine response. Uh, the G-forces started to become so strong that he couldn't lift his arms and his head was mm. like forced down against the center control pedestal. The captain continued to pull back and eventually the airplane began to decelerate rapidly to a speed between 80 and 100 knots, which is now way too slow. <laughs> So uh, as a response, he lowered the nose again, and the speed reached maximum limits again. Wait, so it banked so hard, and then so he turned it the opposite direction to try and, and that slowed everything down? So he so it started going really fast, so he pulled back, and then it started going too slow, so then they had to lower the nose again, and then they reached maximum speed again. So they're like mm. roller coastering. Uh, and what are the, what is their banking? Are they still like vertical? Yeah, they were definitely still banking at this point. And you know, when you're banking and you pull back on the control column, that adds more G-forces as well. Mm. So like I said, he lowered the nose again, speed reached maximum limits, but with the help of the first officer, they decreased speed again and started a smooth acceleration uh, and they were able to descend below the clouds. And while all this was happening, there were no overspeed warnings or stall warnings that went off. No warnings. Things are just weird uh but yeah Mm -hmm. obviously if they're going too fast there should be an overspeed warning constantly if they are stalling i mean if they were between 80 and 100 knots i would think (laughs) i would think they were probably stalling but there's no stall warnings going off and what is the normal speed of the how many knots should it be at just normal like a cruising speed yeah so if if you remember earlier in the episode i said that their cruising speed that they were set for was 0.85 mach which in the terms of knots, that's 566 knots. Oh, and they were going 80? Yeah, between 80 and 100. Mm. So 80 knots is 92 miles an hour, and 100 knots is 115 miles an hour. So they were really significantly slower. Mm -hmm. So eventually, they emerge from the clouds, they pop under them at about 11,000 feet, and they were accelerating through 180 knots. Uh, The captain began to regain control and stabilize the aircraft at about 9,500 feet. And the first officer's ADI started operating normally again. Uh, The number one, two, and three engines also started to come back as well. And when the engineer placed the number four ignition switch into the ground start position, it started up, according to the engineer. And at this point, everything was normal. So it's just like, oh, never mind. We're back. It's normal. Yeah. Now everything's good. Thumbs up. So we're going to get, obviously, we're going to get into what happened in a bit. But it's it's, it's really, it's all really suspicious sounding. It's like, oh. Uh Uh-huh. Now that we're out of the clouds and we can see the horizon, now everything's magically fine. So the airplane stabilized, like I said, and they contacted Oakland Center, reported that they had a flameout emergency, and they were given radar vectors to return to their course. A 1018 Flight 006 requested clearance to climb 
and was initially cleared to flight level 200. The crew reported they could control the aircraft fine, uh, but Oakland, you know, out of an abundance of caution, o- Oakland asked them if they wanted to divert to San Francisco. The crew answered their condition was normal now, and they were going to go ahead and continue to Los Angeles, and they were cleared to flight level 350. So as they're climbing back up, the engineer noticed that the body gear door open lights were on, and the landing gear was indicating down and locked, and the number one hydraulic system fluid gauge was empty. So now, even though they're saying everything's fine, the, en- the engineer's looking around, he's like, well, for now, for some reason, our landing gear's down, and our number one hydraulic system has no fluid at all in it. It's totally empty. It's like a gremlin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're like, what's going on? Why did you lose hydraulic fluid in one of your systems? So, you know, now they know things are obviously not right. So they level off at flight level 270, and they decide to divert to San Francisco, which is definitely the prudent thing to do. Mm-hmm. At 1028, the crew declared an emergency and uh, stated that there were injured people on board. So during the descent, all operations were normal. There were no more issues. I have heard, however, reports that they did have some difficulty with uh, elevator control, you know, like which controls the pitch of the airplane. Presumably, well, we're going to get into why that is <laughs> in a bit, but they did have some difficulty with their elevator control. So they had to do some altitude control or a significant part of their altitude control and their descent uh, by modifying thrust, which, you know, not ideal, but, you know, obviously they were able to do it just fine. They, they were able to yeah. land uh, safely. Because their uh, number one hydraulic system was inoperative, the captain went ahead and shut down the plane on the runway uh, and the plane was towed back to the gate. And you said the f- all engines were working again whenever they yeah. stabilized? Yeah, so they, the, the engineer went through the restart procedure and was able to restart number four. Again, now they're at a lower altitude, you know, below their maximum altitude where they can do a restart. So presumably now that there's more air, the air's thicker, it's able to restart. Whereas before when they tried to do the restart, they were above the maximum altitude for that. Yeah. So all told, there were two serious injuries, 272 minor injuries and no fatalities. I think that the passengers were probably all very fortunate that the crew turned the seatbelt sign on when they mm. started all of this. Yeah. Because, you know, we've talked about in other episodes when people don't have their seatbelts on and things get really bumpy and crazy in a plane, you can get really injured uh, getting tossed around in the cabin. I think the most serious injury was like someone had to spend like two nights in the hospital. It wasn't, you know, terrible or anything. Yeah. This time of year is filled with all kinds of warm, fuzzy memories, gathering with friends and family, making s'mores around a warm fire, dodging said campfire, you know, okay, maybe not all of it is great, but with a smokeless fire pit from Solo Stove, you can avoid the smoke and actually enjoy the fire. I've got a Solo Stove. I love it. Uh, I've been looking forward to this time of year just so I can start using it again. It's cool outside. I can't stress enough how great it is and easy it is to set up, clean up. It's smokeless. Don't have to worry about it. Uh, I'm actually enjoying the cooler weather because of it. So thanks. Uh, Solo Stove's fire pits feature premium grade stainless steel and an airflow system that maximizes efficiency while minimizing smoke. Plus, it's portable for camping trips and more. Upgrade your backyard with a Solo Stove fire pit so you can enjoy the best part of having a fire without the worst parts. Shop Solo Stove's best deals of the year during their Black Friday sale now through November 28th. Get $10 off with promo code BLACKBOXDOWN plus a lifetime warranty and free 30-day returns. Get an extra $10 off Black Friday deals at solostove.com promo code BLACKBOXDOWN. Knock out half your shopping list in a good way by getting a gift the whole family can use. The gift of boxing and kickboxing at home with Fight Camp. Fight Camp brings you access to elite trainers, world-class programming, and smart tech that makes your workout an interactive experience. They have thousands of classes with new workouts added each week, so there's always something new. They provide real-time data to track your progress, plus Fight Camp offers quick workouts that maximize efficiency. With high-intensity interval training, you can get a killer full-body workout uh, combining the best of cardio and strength in one in as little as 20 minutes. 
this is one I was really intimidated by. I thought it was going to be way over my head and be something I couldn't do. Uh, but honestly, it was super easy to set up, super easy to dive into. Uh, it walks you through the whole process. I never felt uncomfortable. Uh, I feel like it was always under my control and I knew what was going on. It's great. Can't recommend it enough. Uh, now's the best time to get your fight camp. Take advantage of the holiday deal going on right now. If you purchase this November, you'll get an additional pair of gloves for free. Just go to joinfightcamp.com slash blackboxdown to get an additional pair of gloves for free. All November, go to joinfightcamp.com slash blackboxdown. Joinfightcamp.com slash blackboxdown. It's cozy season, so give yourself and your family the gift of the best comfort foods from HelloFresh. HelloFresh sends you fresh pre-measured ingredients with delicious recipes so you can skip long lines at the grocery store, get right to making memories and good food. And as fall becomes winter, they got amazing meals for you like chicken ramen in shoyu-style broth and turkey ragu gnocchi. HelloFresh isn't only for meals. Their marketplace has all kinds of desserts and seasonal snacks for you, like Pillsbury pumpkin cookie dough. Doesn't that sound great? Plus, HelloFresh saves you money with prices over 30% less than the grocery store. I mean, I've talked about this so much. It's great to have a little project, make it, eat it. Their marketplace stuff is great. I had some uh, blue core tortilla chips that were absolutely amazing. Uh, I ordered more of them because they were so good. Uh, they're better than what I could find here at the store, it felt like, and they were super cheap. So go to HelloFresh.com slash BlackBoxDown14. Use code BlackBoxDown14, get up to 14 free meals and three free gifts. That's up to 14 free meals and three free gifts at HelloFresh.com slash BlackBoxDown14 with code BlackBoxDown14. So the investigation was carried out by the NTSB. Uh, and after their interviews with the crew, their investigation and analysis concentrated on two major areas. First, of course, they want to identify the cause of the loss of thrust in the number four engine. And then they want to assess whether the actions taken by the flight crew were reasonable and proper. Second, they want to determine why the flight crew was unable to maintain control of the airplane after the loss of thrust on the number four engine. So they, they break it up into two things. Makes sense. Two chunks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they go back, they're reviewing everything that happened. And this is another one of those frustrating incidents where this happened back, like I said, this happened back in 1985. This was back at the time when cockpit voice recorders only recorded 30 minutes and then it would record over itself. Uh huh. So they only had the last 30 minutes of the flight, which was nothing. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's not when the incident happened. So they had flight data recorder. The flight data recorder was pretty messed up and it stopped recording at some time. So they had an incomplete picture of the, uh, of the situation. So they had to kind of try to like, connect some dots and figure some things out because they didn't have all of the information uh, easily readily accessible to them. It seems like there should be like a button to be like, hey, save this section. <laughs> you know like well now, nowadays it's not as big of a deal now it's just like tons of storage yeah. like now you know we have yeah you know usb drives like storage is so small and cheap you know back then they were probably dealing with tape reels and it's yeah, just like yeah. it's a whole other world now yeah nowadays it seems dumb <laughs> <laughs> to not be able to just save everything so they didn't notice that at 10 10 a.m there was a wind shear that increased the airspeed and so the pms decreased the epr on all four engines to 0.9 then the PMS advanced the throttles to get the plane back to its commanded speed. And the investigation showed the number four engine experienced a lean shift of the acceleration schedule, resulting in a reduction in fuel flow available for engine acceleration. A reduction of this type reduces the rate at which an engine would accelerate from flight idle. So the flight data recorder shows that all four engines started to accelerate. However, the number four engine was accelerating at a rate slower than the others. So what's happening here is as the other three engines accelerated, their respective bleed air controllers close their high-stage bleed air valves. And we've talked about bleed air before. Bleed air is like extra air that gets diverted out of the engine into the cabin for, you know, air conditioning, for pressurization, you know, things like that. That way you, you can still breathe when you're at altitude. Mm -hmm. So as 
the numbers one through three engines are accelerating, they close their bleed air valves. That way they have more air to themselves in order to maintain their acceleration. Since the number four engine was accelerating more slowly, it didn't get to the point where it had high enough power for its high stage bleed valve to close at the same time. So it's lagging behind, number four engine's lagging behind just a little bit in its acceleration. And then to make matters worse, what happens is when these other three engines close their bleed air valves, number four hasn't closed its yet. It has to take on all that load of pressurization and air conditioning. So it has to divert even more bleed air to the cabin. Oh. So it loses, you know, even more power as a result. Uh-huh. Uh, so this is like additional fuel demand by this bleed load in combination with the fact that it's getting reduced fuel flow caused it to be a little more lean. And that's why it was kind of hanging slightly above 1.0 EPR. That's why it kind of fell behind. Basically, all the other three engines responded a little more quickly. Number four fell behind. And then as a result, it fell even further behind. Mm. So it wasn't necessarily flamed out. It just wasn't really responding like it should have because it had taken a little longer to respond because of these other conditions that are going on. Yeah. It's like when you trip and then you trip again to try and catch it. You just trip. That, yeah. That's a good way to put it. It's like you lose stability and then like all of a sudden Whoa. you're like trying to recover. Yeah. It's like, oh, 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 God, what's happening? <laughs> yeah. So it's like the engine hadn't actually flamed out. It was just responding slowly and, you know, had these other issues going on. So like I said, the engineer tried to move the throttles to get a response. But the procedure for a hung engine is to close the engine's bleed air valve, but he didn't do this. If he had closed the bleed air valve, you know, it still would have been a little slow, but it would have started responding a little better. However, given the altitude they were at, the NTSB cannot say whether or not the engineer would have been able to restore the engine to normal operation anyway. Like the engine had kind of like gotten to a point where they probably would have had to have descended to, you know, like we said, 30,000 in order to get it back up to speed. Mm -hmm. The engineer had also stated that the other three engines had flamed out, but the NTSB believes this didn't actually happen and that the low engine parameters observed by the engineer were due to the throttles being at or near idle. Oh. Right. <laughs> Advancing the throttles at this point would have produced a much slower engine acceleration than what would have been observed at sea level because the air up there is so much colder and acceleration fuel schedules are, you know, they're affected by total air temperature. So, wait, why, why had they gone to idle? Because he was... Because when the captain had been, you know, messing with the different autopilot systems turning them on and off he had turned off the the system that was regulating the auto throttle and then had oh. reduced the the throttle to idle but I, I believe he hadn't called it out hadn't told anyone that he had done that oh and then on top of all this like we said with the cold air temperature the airplane's changing attitudes the maneuvers it was doing these high g-forces you know the engineer was not able to go through his proper checklist. He was under all this stress now. Like he's being pinned down, can't really look around and all this is going on. So he can't do a normal proper scan. What's going on, looking at everything. You know, like I said earlier, he was pinned down for a little while. That's scary too. The guy yeah. who's like supposed to fix stuff can't move. Yeah, I believe at, uh, at one point, all of this, when all this was going on, they reached uh, five Gs of force. So it'd be like, you weigh five times more than what you normally weigh. So, you know, if you weigh 150 pounds normally, then when there's five Gs of force, you weigh 750 pounds. Like, imagine trying to, like, lift that weight. You're, yeah, you're just, wow. like, being pinned down, unable to move. So the idea that the engines did not flame out is supported by uh, a couple of facts. One... Cabin pressurization did not drop to the point that passenger oxygen masks were deployed. Because like we mentioned, if the engines flamed out, there wouldn't be any bleed air, pressurization would be lost in the cabin, and oxygen masks would fall. Mm -hmm. So that didn't happen. So the NTSB says they most likely didn't flame out. Also, number two, the number four generator breaker had opened when the number four engine was shut down. 
Had the other three engines flamed out, their generators would have also tripped. Uh, the essential AC bus would have lost power. And if that had happened, the flight data recorder would have stopped operating because there's no electrical power and the instrument warning flags would have appeared and neither of those events occurred. And then finally, last one, the engine low oil pressure warning lights did not illuminate. So the NTSB is like, yeah, you know, we know the engineer said the engines flamed out, but there's pretty solid evidence that that's not the case. Yeah, because they can see why it would have appeared that way. Right. Because, yeah, they, like you said, he, all he can tell is that the engines are decreasing thrust, they're, they're losing airspeed, but he doesn't realize that the throttles have been reduced to idle. So, like we mentioned earlier, the number four engine losing thrust kind of set all of this in motion, but losing a single engine on a 747, especially at high altitude cruise, should not cause all of this to have happened, or any of this to have happened, honestly. This isn't even classified as an emergency. <laughs> like, it's, you know, it's something that happens, but it's not like, oh my God, this is an emergency. We need to do something. It's like, oh, okay, it's annoying. Oh, great. Now we got to deal with this engine that's out. So, since this isn't even an emergency procedure, the NTSB directs its attention to the reasons why the flight crew was unable to maintain control of the airplane after thrust gets lost in the number four engine. So, that was it. It was just that. There was nothing else. Nothing else happened mechanically. No. Correct. It was just. The number four engine was a little slow in responding. And as a result, everything went haywire. Like, well, not, not everything, not, nothing. I should say nothing, nothing went haywire. The crew but everything went, went wrong. Yeah. The crew responded in absolutely the wrong way. That's what I was wondering while you're, I was like, is this, it doesn't make sense. I mean, but sometimes things don't make sense. And that's why, that's the whole thing. But like, it doesn't make sense why all these things are happening. Right. Yeah. Like the ADI is going out. Yeah. It's, it, 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 it doesn't makes sense logically but again in their defense we have also covered some situations where things are going wrong and it doesn't make sense but that's the that's the reality but in this case yeah they overreacted so although the first officer was capable of either flying the airplane or assisting the flight engineer in his analysis of the loss of thrust on the number four engine the captain did not task him specifically with either chore the captain also did not direct the first officer to obtain emergency descent clearance the facts show that the first officer performed his communication duties in a timely manner. You know, like I said, he warned the captain of uh, decreasing airspeed. He warned the captain about the increasing right bank angle. That after the number four engine uh, flame out, he called the other engineer without informing the captain and assisted the captain on flight controls without being instructed to do so. Although the first officer was subject to fatigue, boredom, and the same monotonous environment as the rest of the crew, and although he had less off time during the flight than the captain and the engineer, he seemed to have performed his assigned duties and overall monitoring tasks in a timely manner. Okay. So it's like, first officer, seems like he did what he was supposed to do, right? Yeah. Uh, he wasn't, maybe the captain should have asked him to do some other things or some different things, but he seemed to have had a handle on what was happening. The NTSB cannot state with any confidence that any of the psychological factors that could have reduced his capability to perform affected his actions during the accident sequence. The captain and the flight engineer were both performing in a time spectrum other than their typical sleep periods. Although both men had taken a five-hour rest during the flight, the quality of their rest during that period cannot be equated to that which would have been achieved by sleep either at home or in a hotel. You know how it's like trying to sleep on a plane. I mean, and the, their quarters are nicer than trying to sleep like an economy. They can lay down, but still, you know, yeah. it's not comfortable. Especially, you know, I imagine if you're the captain, this is your flight. You know, even if you go to rest and lay down, it's like you're still thinking about the plane. You're still like, oh, I hope those guys are doing an okay job. You're stressed still. It's not good rest. Mm -hmm. And in fact, if I remember right, I think that 
the uh, the captain, you know, even though he had his rest, I believe he ended his rest early, saying, you know, he wasn't able to sleep. He came back into the cockpit before his rest period was supposed to be over. So he may have been fatigued. Mm-hmm. Uh, their duty task consisted of routine monitoring of the performance of the airplane's automated flight systems, a task that's repetitive, monotonous, you know, it produces boredom. The existence of these conditions required the NTSB to examine the possibility they might have influenced the manner in which the flight engineer and the captain performed during the emergency. So the evaluation of the flight engineer's performance shows that for the most part, his actions were timely and correct. However, he forgot to close the engine bleed valve switch, and he was not able to correctly evaluate the operational status of engines 1, 2, and 3. The NTSB can find little, if any, evidence to support a conclusion that the effects of monotony, boredom, and fatigue impaired the flight engineer's performance of his duties. It's not that he was tired, inherently. I mean, he, he might have been tired, but... Right. They can't really say for certain if, you know, any of these things impaired the performance of his duty. I've seen an interview with someone discussing this, uh, this particular incident, talking specifically about the flight engineer's failure to close the bleed air valve or the bleed valve switch. Mm-hmm. And the speculation is that, you know, like I said, this engine, number four engine flamed out at 41,000 feet. I've seen speculation that the engineer was going through his checklist trying to figure out what's going on. But when the captain tells him to try the restart procedure at 41,000 feet, the flight engineer's not prepared for that. He's thinking they're going to do that at 30,000 feet. Yeah. So it's like it interrupts his flow, like what he's going through. He's like, oh, now i got to do this. That is a possible reason for why he forgets to close uh, that bleed valve. That makes sense. Yeah. You know, he's like, oh, no, we got plenty of time. We're still too high to do that. He gets told to do He's like, oh, you're like, I got to switch gears and go do this other thing now. Mm-hmm. And then things went crazy. Right. And then further distraction. Everything's going nuts. So that's just a possibility, right? Just trying to get into the headspace of what they're, what they're thinking about, what's going on in the moment. Uh, so the NTSB concludes that a preponderance of evidence showed either a lack of knowledge of the airplane systems, the traumatic effects of the upset and subsequent descent on the flight engineer's ability to scan the instrument panels or a combination of these factors. The NTSB concluded that one of the causal factors of the accident was the captain's reliance on the autopilot while the airplane was decelerating. For three minutes and 40 seconds, the captain allowed himself to remain removed from the control loop by leaving the autopilot engaged. As a result, he was not aware of the increasing control inputs required to maintain level flight. Had the captain placed himself in a hands-on relationship with the airplane by disconnecting the autopilot, he probably would have been more alert to the increasing asymmetric forces since he would have been required to make the necessary control inputs to maintain level flight. So basically, for those three minutes and 40 seconds, you know, the autopilot is, like I said earlier at the beginning, it's not touching the rudder. It's trying to correct this bank just using ailerons, and it's doing more and more correction. And by the time the captain turns off that autopilot and takes control, he doesn't realize how much the autopilot's doing to try to keep the plane level. Mm. So when he takes control, you know, it just instantly upset. <laughs> it's just like everything goes crazy because, you know, he's, he's taking it on at a neutral position, whereas the autopilot had the ailerons really far, you know, activated in order to try to uh, counter this bank. So, but you say when he takes it on at a neutral position, as in, does it not, do the controls not uh, like move on their own with the autopilot so he could see that they'd been pushed to that far or? They do move. And so he does take it on, but it's that kind of thing where he doesn't realize how much force is being exerted. Okay. So he just kind of like grabs onto the yoke, not realizing, oh, the autopilot's giving this a ton of force right now (laughs) to counter this. So he kind of grabs it. It's like that kind of thing where, you know, you grab something, you don't realize like how fast it's moving or how much force it's going to take. You're like, oh no, (laughs) like this is really a lot. Mm. So he just, you know, because he wasn't actually hands-on, he wasn't fully aware of the the forces that were being acted upon. 
And then the captain also showed that his attention began to focus almost exclusively on the airplane's airspeed. So when he disconnected the PMS from the autopilot, the airplane was rolling through 20 degrees right-wing down attitude, and the captain didn't observe this. Uh, after disengaging the PMS and inserting a nose-down control in the autopilot, the captain continued to monitor the airspeed indicator during this time, and the airplane continued to roll past 45 degrees wing down attitude, and the captain never noticed that. He was just so focused on the airspeed, he didn't notice they've entered a 45-degree bank angle. Yeah. And he, he, was, he was just so, and we've talked about this kind of thing before, he's just so fixated on one gauge and on one thing, he doesn't look at the big picture. And the NTSB concludes the captain overly relied on the autopilot. And this was also causal to the accident since the autopilot effectively masked the approaching onset of the loss of control on the airplane. I don't know about, again, I don't know about 747s. I've taken a couple of flight lessons. I can fly like a little, <laughs> a little you know, propeller plane. When you reach uh, a steep bank angle, like 45 degrees or greater, you have to start giving counter force to it. Otherwise, that bank angle just keeps... Your, your plane wants to keep increasing that bank angle. Unless, so even though you're banked in one direction, 45 degrees or greater, you have to turn your controls in the other direction in order to maintain it, or it'll just keep increasing. And that's what happened in this case. It just kept going. So that's why it ended up... Like, uh, yeah, that's why they ended up in an upset position. Upset is like an, a very generous term because they were... <laughs> they, they were they were not in a good place. Yeah, like they were they, <laughs> very upset. Mm-hmm. I'm upset by your bad attitude. <laughs> no, wait, wait. Your bad attitude has upset me. There we go. <laughs> uh, let's make a shirt of that. <laughs> we got, we got, we're making gold here. Yeah. Uh, okay. So um, there's a few findings here that the NTSB uh, you know, goes through. The flight crew was properly certified and qualified. You know, they had plenty of experience. Uh, the changing airspeed encountered by flight 006 and the resultant compensating throttle adjustments were caused by wind speed variations. Um, you know, that's the auto throttle is going to do that. You know, when you, it's going to compensate for the winds in order to try to maintain the target speed. Uh, the number four engine actually did not flame out, but it hung at about 1.0 EPR. Uh, and we've talked about that. It just was slow in responding and then got to a point where it couldn't respond anymore. It kept tripping, as Chris put it. During his attempt to recover the number four engine, the flight engineer did not close the bleed air valve switch before advancing the number four throttle. The other three engines did not lose thrust, nor did they flame out. The captain did not disengage the autopilot in a timely manner after thrust was lost on the number four engine. The autopilot effectively masked the approaching onset of the loss of control of the airplane. The captain was distracted from his flight monitoring duties by his participation with the flight engineer in evaluation of the engine number four's malfunction. So really, that's something he probably should have just delegated to the flight engineer. And he should have just focused mm-hmm. on flying the plane. Yeah. That's why back then, that's why they had the third person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, with the exception of the loss of thrust on the number four engine, no other airplane malfunction affected the performance of the airplane. Uh, the loss of thrust on the number four engine did not contribute to the accident. So like you said, everything else was fine. Everything was operating normally. They were just fixated on this weird quirk. The captain was also distracted by his attempts to arrest the airplane's decreasing airspeed and this also contributed to his failure to detect the airplane's increasing bank angle. The lateral control deflections required to maintain level flight under conditions of thrust asymmetry and decreasing airspeed exceeded the limits of the autopilot's lateral control authority, causing the airplane to roll and yaw to the right. Again, this is because it's not using the rudder. It's only able to use ailerons. Mm-hmm. The captain lost control of the airplane when after disengaging the autopilot, he failed to make the proper control corrections to recover the airplane. The damage to the airplane was a result of acceleration forces and high airspeeds that occurred during upset and recovery maneuvers. 
So we didn't actually discuss this. I'm going to post these on social media. If you give us a follow at Black Box Down Pod, um, there was significant damage to the airplane. I mean, it was really bad. I'll, I'm going to describe it here in just a bit, uh, just because this is the first time I'm mentioning it. So I, I just got, I got to mention it. We're going to talk about mm-hmm. it in just a second here. Um, so the NTSB determines that the probable cause of this accident was the captain's preoccupation with an in-flight malfunction and his failure to properly monitor the airplane's flight instruments, which resulted in his losing control of the airplane. Uh, contributing to the accident was the captain's over-reliance on the autopilot after loss of thrust on the number four engine. There were actually no recommendations given on the final report because it was just the crew's fault. Like, it was just the captain's fault that things got to this point. There was nothing that went wrong. It's purely mm-hmm. a situation where it's pilot error. Yeah, which I feel like that's rare, right? It's very rare. This might... I don't know for certain. This might be the first incident we've covered where it's an NTSB investigation with no recommendations. <laughs> uh, yeah. Normally, the, normally we get to this part of the episode. There's a huge list I read through. Uh-huh. There's nothing here. <laughs> so instead of going through recommendations, let's talk about the aftermath of uh, this particular incident. So like I said earlier, uh, there were two serious injuries on board, a uh, fracture and a laceration of a foot and an acute back strain requiring two days of hospitalization. The aircraft was significantly damaged by the excessive G-forces. Remember you asked, like, what can happen when you're going over the speed limit, when you exceed your your, uh, G-forces and your speed? Well, let's talk about what happened, what (laughs) physically happened to this plane, Chris. The wings were permanently bent upwards two inches. (laughs) What? Yeah, they were bent out of whack. They were out of shape. The inboard main landing gear lost two actuator doors, and the two inboard main gear struts were left dangling. Remember I said that they noticed their gear was down. The, the forces ripped the landing gear doors off of the plane and oh my the, God. The, the, the gear was down. The most affected part of the plane was the tail where large outer parts of the horizontal stabilizer had been ripped off. The entire left outboard elevator had been lost along with its actuator, which had been powered by the hydraulic system that had ruptured and drained. Remember I said they didn't That's have... That's why they... Out- yeah. yeah, they didn't have elevator control and hydraulic system one was empty. It's because they had just they had lost their entire left outboard elevator. It was just gone. Oh, my. See, that was the other thing when I was like, man, that's weird that that would. It's like all these little weird things. Yeah. That yeah. It's, it, it's because a part of the plane was ripped off and the hydraulic fluid <laughs> leaked out. The photos of the damage to this plane are crazy. I mean, it is it is really, really messed up. Uh, and it's it's crazy to me that with as much damage at it as it sustained, Initially, the captain was like, yeah, we're going to go ahead and continue to Los Angeles. We don't need to divert. And that was then, his initial reaction? Yeah, they were going to continue on to Los Angeles. It wasn't until the engineer said, hey, our gear is down and we don't have any hydraulic oh, yeah, that's in, right. in yeah. system one. He's like, oh, okay. Yeah, I guess we need to divert to San Francisco. It's just bad judgment call. Yeah. So believe it or not, repairs were made to the plane and it returned to service uh, April 25th, 1985. How do you bend a plane's wings back down? Listen, I'm not a pilot and I'm definitely <laughs> not an engineer. Like, I'm not the kind of guy who can repair a plane. They've repaired it and, you know, it only took them a couple of months, I guess. You know, this is April 85. It took them, what, like two months to get it back into service. Uh, and it continued to serve for nearly 12 years uh, wow. until it was leased to China Airlines' sister company, Mandarin Airlines, and it continued to fly for them uh, back in January of 97. And it was in daily service the remainder of that year. Eventually, Mandarin Airlines sent it to the McCarran International Airport for storage. And that's in McCarran International Airport in Las Vegas. You know, air, uh, aircraft get stored in deserts and dry places if they're going to storage. It's easier for them to be stored mm-hmm. there. So that's why they send it to Las Vegas. 
From April 2002 on, it was owned and operated by a religious organization known as the Gospel to the Unreached Millions, and it was christened Global Peace One. Uh, however, uh, eventually on July 17, 2005, the FAA suspended its operating certificate due to insufficient maintenance. It's, uh, it's difficult to maintain these planes. It takes a lot of money. And as of May 20th, 2010, the aircraft was kept in a large hangar at General Abelardo L. Rodriguez International Airport in Tijuana, California. It's reported to be in very poor condition. So it's probably never going to fly again. It's just in a hangar yeah. out in Tijuana. It's, uh, it's effectively uh, done. But at this point, it's, uh, it's a very old plane. Yeah. So no real surprise there. Uh, but that's it. That's China Airlines 006. This is an incident I've been wanting to cover, I think, since we first started this podcast. I'm glad we waited a bit. I feel like we've learned a lot more. We can we can appreciate this one a lot more since we waited uh, and mm-hmm. didn't do this one initially. Uh, I think it's it's super fascinating that a 747 went through such extreme maneuvers and situation uh, and still managed to land. And that you're able to see, you know, people are able to take photos of it. You're able to see what the aftermath of uh, of that happens, uh, of what that looks like on a plane. And what happened to the pilot? Did he get not? He got in trouble, right, or something, right? Because that it was his fault essentially that all this stuff happened, right? There's really no follow-up information that I can find online. There's really nothing that's reported. Uh, I've seen mm-hmm. some speculation that he possibly kept flying with China Airlines for a few years. I can't imagine that that's true. I can't imagine that after this report comes out that any airline would uh, want to hire him or keep him on board. Again, I don't know for certain. There's actually, I'm shocked that there's not much information about it. Normally, when incidents like this happen, we're able to find, you know, you like uh-huh. you, ask, you ask a question like that. And I'm like, oh, it's here in the report or it's here in the aftermath. I There's really no information I can find about it. I don't know if that's, yeah. an, uh, that's because it happened back in 85. 85, if, yeah. yeah. So I, I can't answer that definitively. I'm sorry. Man, I bet he was flabbergasted when they were like, yep, uh, there, nothing happened. It was all yep. you. <laughs> uh, you did this. <laughs> yeah. All right. But that's it for this episode of Black Box Down. Uh, like I said, give us a follow on social media at Black Box Down Pod. We'll post some of these images and uh, we'll be back again next week with another episode. And if right now, great time. Go to YouTube. Check out uh, YouTube.com slash Black Box Down and subscribe, share. It's the holiday season. Maybe uh, yeah. buy a Black Box Down shirt or a mug or something. Oh, to yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go to store.roostyth.com for that. Yeah, and it's our link tree, but there's we have, I'm sure there's some good sales and stuff too. So yeah, get some good cool stuff. I'm actually drinking out of the black box down mug right now. It's a good little nice little mug. <laughs> uh, I drank my I drank my coffee three hours ago in the morning like an adult. Well, you know, some of us wake up, you know, maybe thirty minutes before we need to start work. <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah.